0: And in Australia, freedom of information laws allow many of us or any of us to lodge an FOI request for documents held by government departments. And it's an important um, a part of our democracy, really, because it's an accountability tool that allows us to shine a light into the dark corners of decision making, including within ministers' offices. But a new study into FOI shows that the system is broken. And the Grada Fund at the University of New South Wales has interviewed journalists and individuals and civil. Society leaders to better understand the federal government's approach when processing FOI requests. And as a result, the Grata Fund has released an FOI hit list of concerning exemption areas that it has identified within this area of law and that they're willing to challenge in the courts. Uh, Isabel Reineke is Exec Director of the Grata Fund, and it's great to have you on Triple R, Isabel. And it's great to hear also about this hit list and about the Grata Fund. Um, It's good to have you here.
2: Thanks so much for having me. I always love the opportunity to talk about democracy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, me too. And uh, I mean, lots of people would have heard of freedom of information laws, but I'm assuming few of us have ever actually lodged a request. For those that are kind of broadly unfamiliar, how is the system supposed to work?
2: Yeah, so FOI is a relatively little-known tool outside of journalists and and advocates, but it's a really powerful tool to hold politicians accountable. Um, So the idea is, obviously, the government is meant to be accountable to the people. um, And the way that works is you're supposed to be able to access information that the government has uh, about our lives. So, for example, if the government's deliberating on how to do a COVID vaccine rollout, we're supposed to be able to access that information so that we can scrutinise it um, and if we see any problems, we can hold uh, the decision-makers accountable for those problems. Um, but what we're seeing more and more is that the government is making it really, really difficult for people to access that information, um, with really nasty impacts on democracy and, and on regular people who are affected by those decisions. Um, and, you know, you can kind of understand it on the one hand, because, you know, for the government, it, the misconduct being exposed is really embarrassing. Um, but that's not the way the system is meant to work. You're not supposed to keep your secrets hidden from the public you've got to let the public know so they can decide what they want to do about it.
1: And as part of putting this together, you've you've interviewed a, a range of people, including including journalists and um and you know other people who have tried to get information out of out of governments and the way that governance works. What did you find from that process?
2: Yeah, look, we found a, a, what we've called a hit list of five areas where we think the government is using exemptions to the FOI system unlawfully. So under freedom of information, there are a few areas where the government is allowed to keep things secret. So, for example, if there's something really, really top secret about national security, and there are other examples. But what we've found is the government is using those exemptions really, really broadly. So we've got five areas where we think... um, the, the government's using the, the exemptions unlawfully. So one of those is cabinet confidentiality, so really massively expanding um, what's usually confidential in cabinet to a much broader range of information. Or another example is whether the change in minister. So what we've got at the moment, which is pretty shocking when people hear it, is that if you change a minister's portfolio, so say you reshuffle your cabinet, all of the information that was under that minister then ceases to exist for the purposes of freedom of information. That's amazing. So,
0: yeah, it's a what if they changed their minister because there was problems in their office?
2: Well generally that is what's happening so um, what that, that still stands at the moment is in the way that they're applying the law so what they're saying is well the minister's moved, we've moved them on because they were dodgy or you know whatever their reason is that they, they wanted to move someone on and then you can't access any of the information according to the government uh, about what was happening there so that's a really an example where we think that the court really needs to actually have a look at this and see whether they agree that that actually is what the FOI system says and and our bet is is on that that's actually not lawful.
1: And there's kind of an interesting twist in in this document you've put together as well where, you know, you'd say that you encountered your own difficulties when you submitted FOI requests on how government bodies actually process FOIs. So did you kind of find that, that there wasn't a lot of transparency about even how the system itself works?
2: Yeah, there's really very little transparency about how people actually use FOIs within the system. So, if you say to a department, hey, how do you process FOIs, they, they tell you very little, or um, well, there's very little information. Um, so, you know, that's just one example. But, uh, you know, if you talk to people casually in the public service, often in senior departments, and, you know, say to them, oh, what's the reality of how FOIs are working? And they'll, they'll tell you, well, you know, the first step is to, to try and avoid having to give any information. It's generally a reject. So, you actually found Found, uh, the, the OAIC, which is the, the body that kind of reviews FOI decisions before things go to court, found that um, three of the biggest departments so the Prime Minister's Department, the Australian Federal Police, and um, Human Services, which do you know Centrelink and everything that affects people's lives day to day um, were actually called out by the OAIC for, for breaching the Act for delays. So basically, they were just kicking things for the long grass and taking as long as possible to get people information. Um, and we also know that over half of the denials, so basically an FOI request goes into a department and the department says is saying no, half of those denials are being, or more than half of those denials are being overturned at first instance. Um, so what we do know is that there's basically a pretty um, system-wide um, attempt to slow things down make it expensive and make it really difficult to access info and it's essentially a stalling delay tactic and and the reason you would do that as a government is if you've got a journo trying to get some information or, or an advocate trying to get some information that's unflattering, if you can delay it come out in the next election cycle or maybe wait until you've got a your minister. Um, you're just kicking it to the long grass and kind of um, and delaying accountability effectively.
0: Isabel um, Reineke is with us. She's the Exec Director of the Grata Fund and uh, out of uh, University of New South Wales and they've been having a look at freedom of information and finding that uh, really broad definition of, of what can be exempt from FOA uh, inquiries and also delay and expense uh, really are breaking the system in in many ways. And you also, a quote from the document, Isabel, is that um, champions of open government are few and far between at the political level and in senior public service. And I think, you know, Senator Rex Patrick is someone that is prominent in your document who appears to be one of those rare representatives that is a champion in this area. Do we have many of the kind of Rex Rex Patricks around or, or are you finding that there are very few champions of open government as the quote says.
2: Look, there really are very few. And I think part of the reason is that um, when you've got the two major parties, so anyone who's part of the two major parties, both parties kind of have an interest ultimately, a self-interest and self-preservation in not revealing information. So whoever's not in government doesn't have a massive incentive to change or push for change because they know that they'll benefit from a secrecy when they get in too. So you are left often um, with people like Rex Patrick um, who are terrific advocates for the field information system, really working within Parliament, actually, to try and hold the government accountable. Um, and he's been really fabulous, actually, working on this. Funnily, his, his original interest in this was trying to find out what was happening with um, South Australian submarine contracts as a, as a South Australian representative. Um, he was wondering why those contracts were going overseas um, rather than to... to jobs in south australia and that's just really opened i think for him this really amazing interest and passion for for accountability in in government um And, you know, his his recent case, so he recently um, challenged one of the issues that we've identified as a big problem, which is um, the National Cabinet, it's so-called National Cabinet. So this is a new body that's been set up since COVID to deal with the COVID response at a federal level. And it's not actually Cabinet, so it's not Federal Cabinet, which is made up of the top ministers of government, which is typically, you know, relatively confidential and understandably so. This is the intergovernmental forum. So this is all the states, premiers and the Prime Minister and his ministers meeting to talk about what to do about COVID. Um, and the Prime Minister basically unilaterally said, oh, this is, this is all Cabinet documents. This is all super confidential. And that information has never been confidential before. We used to have a forum called COAG, which was what National Cabinet used to be called. And, and that information has always been accessible. And so what happened with the government saying National Cabinet is exempt from FOI is that you can't get any information on things like vaccine rollouts or a gas-led recovery or any of these things that we've been hearing about and wanting to know more about. So what Rex Patrick did is actually took it to court. So he said, uh, look, I think that this is unlawful. I think you're interpreting the law wrong. And he won, which is terrific. Um, He's he's gotten access to the docs he was trying to get access to, which was just basic information about how National Cabinet works. But in response, the government has now introduced a bill to say, to change the law to say, no, National Cabinet is definitely exempt from the Freedom of Information system. So they're going to pretty extreme lengths to try and keep... Information um, about the COVID
1: recovery um, permanently secret, and and what's your sense of, of whether that might be successful? Because obviously, national cabinet is made up of um, you know the state premiers and and territory leaders and um, the federal government as well. So there's you know both major parties are, are kind of represented in that. Do you think this is something that that you know conceivably that the two major parties would pretty much sign up to um, uh, you know a reduction or push back against greater transparency, particularly into into FOI over that national cabinet process.
2: Look, you'd hope not, given that this is going to be something that continues after COVID, likely, the National Cabinet. So it's likely to affect all kind of intergovernmental decisions. And you'd think that there might be some tension between states and, and the federal government, because this is a federal law that will affect state governments as well. So previously, you know, as you know, you can see many disagreements between state and federal governments over the years. Um, and, and you can see that actually, you know, it might be that the state government would quite prefer it if some of the information that, that was happening at a federal level was was published public so that they could actually also hold the federal government accountable. So it, it's hard to tell at this stage. Um, but as we know, the trend is for both sides of politics to go against transparency and to um, increase restrictions through the FOI system. So we can we really have to work pretty hard and be pretty hopeful that we can um, stop that change from, from taking place.
1: And as it stands, if an individual puts in an, an FOI request and, and finds that it's rejected or even that they, you know, receive some documents and 90% of it's redacted and isn't all that Mm. useful. What measures are there that that they can take to try and have that challenged or overturned at all?
2: So the first step is they go to the OAIC, which is the body that oversees FOI decisions and that then gets reviewed. But if that review is unsuccessful or successful and the government decides to challenge it, you go to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which um, is a kind of OK, low-cost place to go for a court um, and you can actually have a court oversee the decision. But if you disagree with it again or the government disagrees with it again, um, you then go up to the federal court. So there's a there's a pretty long appeal process and, you know, that's pretty difficult and intimidating for people. That's what we're seeing, but people are sort of giving up at that point because you go, oh, well, I've waited six months for something that was supposed to take a couple of weeks to get to me. It's heavily redacted. Do I really want to go through the whole court process? Mm. It gets expensive. Um, And that's really where we come in in terms of trying to support people. So what we are really setting out to do is helping people hold the government accountable in court. So we're here as a support system um, with 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 financial support and strategic support to help people say you know actually I am going to go for this bit of information at a higher level and I'm actually going to fight it all the way through the courts because as we've found in the report actually we think that often the government's acting unlawfully and if you did actually get some of these to court you would actually get access to the information but importantly not just get access to the information hold the whole system to account better
0: and 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 then it benefits the system itself the FII system and and, exactly. and will kind of deal with some of these issues around around exemption and delay and expense that you've you've articulated. And I guess, um, I mean, it's sort of handy at this point to remember that, that, the courts are actually a fundamental pillar of our democracy we've got the parliament we've got the executive we've got the media we've got the courts and so what you're um, putting forth here is that we actually need the courts to help clarify here this isn't um i think sometimes there's a sense that going the court route is kind of in inverted commas nuisance type behavior but this is actually fundamental to the way our democracy works as far as as far as i can see
2: yeah, that's exactly right. I completely agree, obviously. Um, look, I think courts we often think of as like the thing to settle our divorce or our like property dispute or something like that but courts are actually there to hold the government accountable too. That's what the rule of law is and and it, we, we actually need to get into more of a practice of going to court and saying, actually no, we are going to hold you accountable to the law as well um, but we also acknowledge that that's a really often stressful and really expensive process which is why we're here to help people to do that. Um, the thing is as well, like there are other tactics, right? You can use other law reform tactics and campaign tactics and advocacy approaches. And those are all really important as well. So it's not about the court sitting there by itself, but it's also about saying, okay, where, where everything else has failed, where you really can't get, get movement through other means, let's just go to court because the court will actually, it has a role in our democracy of actually adjudicating whether the government is being, uh, is breaking the law or not.
0: Thanks so much for sharing all this with us Isabel and uh yeah it's it's been really insightful appreciate it
2: so you're so welcome.
0: Thanks for the chat. Uh, Isabel reiner is Exec Director of the Grata Fund and uh, that's out of the University of New South Wales. And yeah, you can find out more information on their website. They have an FOI hit list and a whole lot of uh, interesting information there around how the system's working now, why it's broken and what they're trying to do to to set that straight. And uh, if, yeah, if you if this sort of sparked an interest, go and have a look at how you can get in touch and with them. And an that.
1: issue that's not specific to the federal government as well, there's been local councils have it, Universities issues. are subject to it. That's right. That's right, and um, and similar um, issues around different levels of government as well. So, absolutely, very important. You're listening to a Triple
3: R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
1: It was just over 20 years ago that the Norwegian freighter, the MV Tampa, was involved in a tense standoff with the Australian government after coming to the rescue of more than 430 asylum seekers who were stranded in the Indian Ocean. The Tampa's captain had decided to take those on board to Christmas Island out of concern for their safety, but the Howard government at the time refused to allow them to disembark. The saga ended with SAS soldiers boarding the boats and taking those on board to a hastily assembled detention facility on Nara. And this affair has been viewed as key in kick-starting Australia's hardline approach to asylum seekers, particularly the policy of offshore processing, which was further fuelled by the 9-11 terrorist attacks coming just a few weeks after. Peter Mayers has written a really insightful piece for Inside Story that reminds us of some of the details of that time, the key details, and its relationship to Australia's asylum seeker policies that followed. And this is, of course, coming in the context of Australia's, you might say, messy withdrawal from Afghanistan as well as being contributing editor for Inside Story, Peter is lead moderator and program director at the Cranlana Centre for Ethical Leadership at Monash University, and we're very happy to have him on the line. Peter, welcome back to Triple R.
4: Thanks, Dylan. It's a pleasure to be back here with you.
1: And uh, the feelings likewise. And um, it's probably important to kind of take us back to 2001 and and the political climate and dynamics of that time. Can you remind us kind of what was going on and and I suppose the status of Australia's asylum seeker policies back then?
4: Yeah, sure. Look, um, for a start, it was an election year, so that's an important bit of the context. And um, the Howard government, which was about to face its third election, had not been tracking well in the polls throughout uh, 2001. They'd been clawing back some ground with things like uh, freezing petrol, tech, uh, petrol excise, or I think some handouts to the over-60s and things like that, but still uh, Howard was in a lot of trouble. Uh, so that's the political context. Um, in terms of arrivals, asylum seekers arriving by um, by boat, there'd also been a surge in arrivals. And in just the weeks just prior to the Tampa, we'd seen three boats carrying uh, more than a 1,000 uh, asylum seekers between them uh, land on Australian territory. So there was a, a kind of atmosphere of... Um, Anxiety and concern around the growing uh, uh, number of boat arrivals and sort of larger boats or or boats with more people crammed on them. You know, the whole smuggling effort, the enterprise that that, uh, uh, brought people from Indonesia to Australia was growing, Uh, I suppose, you know, becoming more organised. And so there was, uh, you know, a concern that Australia was losing control of its borders, let's put it that way. I mean, um, certainly that was, you know, tabloid headlines and, and uh, shock jocks and talkback radio. There was an atmosphere of high anxiety um, verging on hysteria at times about, about boat arrivals. Uh, and, of course, we already had a policy. It's important to remember, too, we already had a policy of um, mandatory detention for anyone who arrived uh, by boat seeking asylum. This had been put in place by the Keating... Well, it had been put in place by by the Labor government um, and formalised in legislation in 1992 um, under Paul Keating as Prime Minister. So we were, already had a pretty tough line on asylum seekers, mm. which meant that people were detained in outback remote camps in places like Woomera in South Australia or Curtin, the old Curtin Air Base or, or, or Port Headland in, in Western Australia.
0: And I mean, in the in that sort of context that you're speaking about, people might have seen repeated about a million times John Howard saying the sentence, "We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come." How did that fit in around what happened with 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 the Tampa? Like, what t- t- what did what did the Tampa sail into, um, Peter?
4: Well, uh, uh, yes, he, so that became a famous slogan that came from one of his election speeches. Uh, and, of course, before he made that statement, we'd had September 11. So we, what, what got added to this mix was, uh, you know, and for those who, who remember September 11, it was a you know, profoundly shocking event, very unsettling. Um, And that fed into this kind of fearful anxious um, mood that was abroad in Australia at the time. And, of course, most of the people uh, coming by boats, or a large proportion of them, were Muslim. Uh, And so of the most, almost all the asylum seekers on the Tampa, for example, were um, from Afghanistan. So you had this... um, linkage, this, this, you know, deliberate linkage being made by by people like then Defence Minister Minister Peter Rees, between the people on the boats and the terrorists, as if the people on the boats might be future terrorists. The fact that they were fleeing the very regime that had harboured the terrorists, uh, you know, that, that logic didn't kind of sink through. So you had this, this sense of border control being even more important than it had ever been because of the potential of the threat posed by, by terrorism. Um, but the, 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 it's interesting to note, you know, that line, we all decide who comes to this country and the circumstances under which they come, in which they come, it's interesting how the language today, if we think about it, when we hear about asylum seekers today, the justifications are often around protecting lives at sea, you know, stopping people getting on these boats and being exploited by those awful people smugglers. Uh, but back then it was quite clearly, and I, you know, the the, the, the thing was about border security and, and Australian sovereignty. That was very much the, the kind of message that was being put
1: yeah and uh, I mean in, in terms of you write in the article that um, you know in your view it wasn't so much the the Tampa incident but September 11 that was really decisive in winning Howard the election that year and, and I think that's interesting because there's been a, a certain tendency I suppose to view this um, system we've had of, of you know quite a punitive approach to to asylum you know going back you know since then really um, that that has kind of become something that uh, you know very Politicians have found it very hard to challenge. Um, but do do you sort of think that there's actually more scope to to change the current system without necessarily, you know, um, committing yourself to, to you know years in opposition or, or not being elected because the, the the public might not go for that?
4: Yeah, look, I think you're right, Dylan. I think there's a view in the Labor Party that they can't oppose tough border control policies because it will lose some elections. Um, but First of all, we have to remember that we had tough policies before the Tampa. They were different policies, but they involved mandatory detention and long periods of detention, and uh, and so on. So we, we already had tough policies. Um, the, the the but I think the you know this is a very debated point, but I think the the evidence shows that what determines votes in the end are not um, border control policies so much as other types of issues like health education jobs tax rates and so on so while while um ha- having said that i don't want to give the impression that most people didn't support Howard. they did i mean it was quite clear opinion polling at the time was decisively in howard's favor probably by two-thirds to one-third there was you know there was strong uh, there was strong minority opposition to what the howard government did but the majority was very clearly with howard and and you know that kind of support for strong border policy, I think, continues today. So I'm not. I'm not saying it's not politically popular to have uh, tough border policies, but I'm not saying. What my view would be, I'm not sure it's as decisive in determining elections as maybe has come to be believed. Um, and, and, and you know, we know from history, from say the Fraser government's approach to asylum seekers um, coming out of Vietnam. Uh, you know, when we also... That's the very first time we had these boat arrivals. Uh, the Fraser government was also under pressure, this time from uh, Labour opposition to be tougher. And Fraser, you know, um, basically stood up and or he, he and his ministers declared that, look, we have a particular responsibility here. We can't just sort of push people back to sea and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, there's also this capacity for leaders to articulate the kind of responsibilities Australia has voluntarily signed up to on under the International Convention on, on Refugees, for example, which is if someone may come into your territory seeking protection, you have an obligation and they're in need of protection, you have an obligation to provide it.
0: And for those that don't have it in their living memory, Peter, I mean, that idea that, um, you, you, know, as you as you said about, about the... Um, you know Vietnamese people coming to Australia, and this idea, and this sense of, of responsibility, and that leadership that you just spoke about—that's absolutely not what um, John Howard represented at that moment. It was—it was quite different to that. And you—and you write that it was a crucial turning point because it was a break in long-standing policy. But what bit of that, as you say, you know, mandatory detention was there, and things like that. What is the bit that that shifted?
4: So I've described it um, as a shift from. Uh, deterrence by example to deterrence by force. So for me, the key thing is not offshore processing uh, uh, that policy, as significant as that policy is. The significant thing is what happened after uh, we started sending people to Nauru and and later to Papua New Guinea to be warehoused on Australia's behalf. What we also also did was introduce uh, um, a military operation called then Operation Relics and people will be more familiar with with the more contemporary version of it, which is Operation Sovereign Borders, uh, which came under the Abbott government. So Operation um, Relics involved using the navy to turn boats around, to turn turn back or take back asylum seekers to Indonesia. Now that's the real, uh, in my view, that the, the, so that. Be- Rather than deterrence by example, where we make an example of those people arri- who arrive by locking them up in outback camps or locking them up in Nauru, making the process to protection to being given a visa as difficult and long and unpleasant as possible in order to say to people, look, don't we're no soft touch. Don't come and try it on with us here in Australia, you know. Uh, that's deterrence by example to deterrence by force, where we simply don't let people get here. We turn them around and send them back to Indonesia, uh, and that that's been that was the, to me the significant shift. Um, but but I want to add one other thing here, if I may, and that is if we go right back to the tamper, it's important people and people who don't remember that you know um, were too young or, or don't remember the details. It's important to remember. The Tampa was a, a, a freighter that was heading from Fremantle to Singapore. The whole reason it rescued these asylum seekers was because we, Australia, asked it to. Mm. We sent out an alert saying there's a, this boat in distress. Could any ship nearby go to its assistance? A customs watch plane, so one of an Australian plane, flew over the top of the Tampa as it went to this boat. They were acting at, at Australia's request to render service. Now, this is an incredibly important um, part of the um, another in national, international convention on safe, safety of life at sea, which is that you go to a boat in distress. And then we say to them, well, you can't land them here. And so what's the precedent being set there in terms of other boats saying, well, why would I go and help this, these asylum seekers if I'm going to have this world of trouble once once I do so?
1: Speaking with Peter Mayers, his lead moderator and program director at the Cranlana Centre for Ethical Leadership at Monash University. He's also contributing editor for Inside Story and we're chatting all about a piece he's written uh, for Inside Story all about the 20th anniversary of Tampa which, um, which we marked just a, a couple of weeks ago. And... and so, On that note, I mean, I I think remembering that the rationale for what happened around Tampa and and the kind of rhetoric we're hearing from the government today in terms of, um, you know, preventing uh, lives lost at sea and and, and that kind of thing. um, I mean, that's been effective because there's, I suppose, some kernel of truth to it, that people can see that if there's fewer people getting on boats in these, you know, rickety vessels and and they find themselves in distress, then you know there's a likelihood of of, of drowning. And for those who, I think, uh, you know, care about this issue um, coming from a position of, of compassion, there's, I think, a challenge in, in getting your head around what would be the most workable solution for Australia if you oppose, you know, mandatory offshore detention and, and you oppose turnbacks and that kind of thing. And given that you're arguing based on what others have said that it's really turnbacks rather than mandatory sort of offshore detention that is the deterrent, how does that sort of, I suppose, square up ethically, particularly given, which is a point you make in the piece as well, that if we are turning boats back, where we're offloading the problem to places like Indonesia, which already have a lot of challenges dealing with displaced people?
4: Yeah, look, it's a hugely, hugely difficult issue. So there's a number of factors here. First of all, we elect governments um, to represent us and to act on our behalf. And if a vast majority of Australians want strong border control policies, governments can argue, well, we're doing what we've been elected to do and what people want us to do, and to do otherwise would be a breach of trust with the Australian people. So there's that side of, that's, that's you know, side of it. Um, and another view would be, well, look, um, if someone gets here, we ought to give them every protection. Uh, so we shouldn't stop people seeking protection in Australia, but if we went down that route, as we saw under the Rudd government, uh, you know, the smuggling would very quickly grow very large again, and yes, people's lives would be put at risk. And we're really then protecting only those people who can manage to get to Australia, that is, have the money to make the journey. Under, we are putting people at, you know, acknowledging the people we put at risk and so on. So that's not really a solution either. Um, the, there are no simple solutions, of course, but I would argue that rather than spending billions of dollars um, detaining people in countries like Nauru, if we had put in a huge amount of effort to supporting regional solutions and systems that would see people treated humanely, with their rights acknowledged, provide much greater resettlement options uh, earlier in the in the in the um, of refugee flight, as it were, then we might be in a in a better position. But given how many millions of people are displaced around the world, there, it's not like that there's a, a simple way for us to 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 solve this. There's no simple solutions. But I think the the experience of the uh, Chinese refugees after um, you know in, you know in the, in the post Vietnam War period suggests that uh, comprehensive plans of regional cooperation and international cooperation are, are our best hope for managing this uh, hugely difficult issue better rather than than worse
0: and it's good to, to hear that word hope but I wonder what your thoughts are Peter with what we're we're really you know continuing to to watch and it feels a a little bit powerless actually to, to watch what's happening in afghanistan now that australia has ended its formal involvement there and thinking back 20 years to the tampa where the majority of of people that were rescued by the tampa were afghans you know we we understand fleeing the taliban now the taliban is there again like how do you kind of make the linkages yourself with with where we are now 20 metres later, 20 20 years later?
4: Yeah, Kalia, it's a really interesting question. I've been going around this thought experiment in my head, actually. What if the Taliban had said, OK, we're going to leave the airport open and uh, we're going to let people get to the airport um, and you, the West, can take as many people as you like, All all, all those women who want their rights, all those gay people, all those political opponents of our regime, let them go. How, how how many airlifts would we have really done? What would have been the point at which Australia and the US had actually do we want X million people out of Afghanistan? How 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 deep does our commitment go to providing uh, a, a safe a safe place for people? I think that's a really interesting thought experiment to do for ourselves. Um, just because it it, it you, you know it, it shows how big the challenge is, but it also um, it. it Helps us see through a bit the uh, the kind of concern that's being voiced for the for the Afghans. Well, where's the action? Where's the support? And, and what's what we're going to see now is more and more people head into Iran and Pakistan, which have hosted Afghan refugees for such a long time already. Uh, and and some of them will seek to move further afield. Be that towards Europe or towards. Um, Other countries, possibly possibly Australia. But, you know, we should also remember there's 1.2, 1.1, 1.2 million Rohingya out of uh, Myanmar living in camps in Bangladesh. Mm. So it's not like uh, the Afghan refugee crisis is the only one we need to think about.
1: And I mean, the, the, the pace of the, um, I suppose, the situation, how, how that escalated in Afghanistan took a lot of people by surprise when, when the Taliban took over Kabul. So in some sense, it felt like um, the US and, and Australia were kind of caught off guard a little bit. But I've sort of been thinking about how we, we learn lessons from the past. We learn lessons from 9-11 and from the Tampa incident and, and um, you know, questioning the sort of lack of planning in, in an exit strategy and, and offering um, safe haven to. You know, a, a sizable number of Afghans. Given those um, numbers that were announced, were you know criticised for being quite small. When we sort of think about the Tamper incident and, and Australia's current um, uh, asylum seeker policy regime, do you think there have been any lessons learned? And and I suppose you know, tied to our experience with Afghanistan as well, coming after nine eleven.
4: Oh, big question, Dylan. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think. I still, I would say it this way: that we haven't got our act together, uh, either Australia as a country or, or other countries, to to um, take serious efforts to deal with forced uh, migration. That you know, the displacement that happens to people uh, all around the world as a result of conflict. And we, we also, I think, and there's a bigger question there, which is beyond the scope of my expertise, really. But you know, have we learned? To think more carefully about about when we intervene and for what purpose we intervene militarily in in other countries, and you know, do 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 we have a clear sense of uh, uh, of where it leads when we engage in a in um, in a military intervention like the ones in Afghanistan or Iraq?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, hopefully, there's space in amongst our our current pandemic. Crisis discussions for these kinds of things because it, yeah, it's something that we need to keep working through. I reckon um, it's great having you with us, Peter. It's good to good to speak with you, and thanks for your um, essay too. And people can find it uh, on the Inside Story website. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks
1: so much for being here. It means a lot.
0: And our next guest is No Stranger to Triple R. Adam Grubb is a former regular voice on this show and was co-host on Grinning the Apocalypse for several years also. Uh, Adam's a permaculture editor and author of The Weed Forager's Handbook. And now he and collaborator Anna Razor-Roland have released a children's edition of that best-selling book. It's called Let's Eat Weeds, A Kid's Guide to Foraging. And Adam Grubb, good morning. Lovely to have you on the grapevine and to hear your voice
3: yeah back at you both (laughs) lovely to be here and congrats uh, on Radiothon
0: yeah I know thank you feels so good we're basking in it to be honest (laughs) it's like (laughs) just feels soaking it all up yeah I know I kind of was loving the the social media posts on the weekend when we hit the 10,000 mark which always feels really great Um, oh yeah yeah, but I've been loving the promotions around your uh, kids' foraging guide, Adam, that it's a perfect social distancing activity, and a month into this lockdown, I must say, that sealed the deal for me. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I don't know. I heard you um, speculating about whether it's an allowable activity. I mean, I certainly think... Um, you know, you're out there walking anyway. I I, I'm actually, I do forage quite a lot from for, you know. I don't spend a lot of money on veggies because there's such a plethora of free vegetables growing in the environment. But it's not like I actually go out specifically to look for them. It's more just like they're there on the way somewhere. Now, uh, you know, we do say in the book that because of soil toxins and not knowing about spraying regimes are the safest place, you know, to forages in your own backyard and things like that. But, you know, I, I do personally take some calculated risks out in the environs <laughs> and uh, and wh- where, it, where it is like, oh, I think I will take a little detour, you know, along the creeks or something. Um, and often you end up taking yourself into... So, you know, occasionally be on the way, but then like oh, a little little, so, little, little um, side quest. And uh, you, d- you do end up being drawn into these little pockets of the urban landscape, which are often a little bit forgotten. They might be, you know, underneath a rough uh, bridge or something. And uh, I actually really appreciate it from that angle as well. You just... Uh, I mean, there's something about... Nature, like I, I, I have a love for, you know, all, all the work that landscape architects and garden builders do. I do it professionally myself. But where nature is just coming back and it wasn't invited, and specifically it's, you know, uh, this emergent ecology of, of sometimes. Quite scandalous species. Uh, I, just, I get a little buzz in those kind of you know out of the way places, and I think a lot of my appreciation for those weeds initially started just by learning about how many of them are edible.
1: Yeah, and it, it makes a lot of sense. I um you know I mentioned before that yesterday you know went for a run along the Mary Creek Trail and because there was so much flooding everywhere. I found myself in these little pockets that I didn't even know existed, um, and the idea that you know going and looking around for edible weeds could lead you on some of those little adventures as well. Is, um, is is really beautiful, I think. But, I mean, you've been educating adults about all this stuff for a while. What led you to wanting to write a, a kid's book?
3: Well, actually, the publisher, who we're just really lucky to work with, Scribble, the the kid's uh, imprint of Scribe, uh, came to us. And Mary, from there, yeah, camp approached us with the idea. And I don't think we would have come up with it ourselves. And, I, and it took a little bit of dwelling on it. Like, well, I mean... Number one, life goals don't want to poison children and <laughs> um, and there's a potential of that because if you forage without knowledge if you was just to eat randomly from, you know, it's like crossing the road with your eyes closed. There are some poisonous plants out there. But we did reflect on the fact of the book you mentioned, the Weed Foragers Handbook, has been out for almost a decade and has sold 40,000 copies, and we're yet to hear of anybody hurting themselves <laughs> through application of the skills there. Um, and we do have uh, a lot of people, Along to workshops with their kids and friends with kids who, and we even get stories uh, sent to us of like, well, we didn't, you know, it was we bought the book, but it was really our kids that picked it up and started using it the most. They mm. um, were like, well, you know what, maybe we can do this, and working with. Um, Evie Barrow, who's just a wonderful illustrator, uh, I'm so glad we said yes because it's just really beautiful and it's fun to write for kids as well. You get to make even daggier jokes. I was going to say, you're
0: pretty you good normally. at that. Your voice, yours and Anna's um, voice. Uh, yeah, and Annie, Yeah, yeah Annie, sorry, Annie's voice is, is so... Um, beautiful and fun and yeah dad jokes and stuff <laughs> but I really I really like it and I mean did you did you did that sort of come naturally to you or were you did you need to sort of seek advice about writing writing for children
3: well fortunately it came naturally because it was during lockdown and I Honestly, I still haven't had the opportunity to pick up a comparable title in the same age group because I couldn't just duck down to readings and flick through books and things and see what does kids' writing look like? Um, But apparently, yeah, we hit the tone okay and... um, not heaps of editing was needed so I guess that speaks to our level of maturity or something more than anything else
1: <laughs> yeah it's I mean it's it, obviously it is a kid's book but it's um it, it's not really dumbed down I mean it's full of information and and uh, you know little facts and, and and things that would be really useful useful for an, an adult um, wanting to sort of make their start I suppose in, in foraging as well did you have an idea of of the age group or the publisher have an idea of the age group this would be kind of best designed for
4: yeah, I think we, we talked about
3: aiming for sort of 6 to 11, but with fairly broad strokes around that as well, with the idea that up to a certain age you would certainly be reading it with a, with a uh, carer. Mm. Um, and, but, but above, say, 9 or something, you might be or, or precocious, I don't know, younger, but like you, you might be the, reading it primarily on your own. Um, there is a section in the book for adults to read and a section of our website, com, which is just a few tips for adults in helping facilitate, mostly on the safety side of things. Um, but we do put a lot of faith in children's capacity... Uh, to learn this stuff and do it safely on their own eventually. Because, you know, like fundamentally it is a skill that you needed to survive in our ancestral environment until the, until the agricultural revolution, which was just a you know, handful of generations ago comparative to the whole of human history. And we've seen children as young as two be you know like uh, foraging safely (laughs) and um, uh, that's an extreme example but um, with friends that were just teaching their kid from a really young age.
0: Yeah and I mean is that well that when you were selecting the plants to feature in this book was that part of your thinking the ones that you know, kids. Well, kids and adults can can readily recognise. Is that was that sort of part of why you selected yeah. what you did?
3: Both books, actually. Um, but in the kids' book, we've divided the book up into. Uh, Two sections, and the first section is what we call the easy weeds, which means there's less things that can go wrong, there's uh, less complexity. Some some weeds have, as do garden, you know, vegetables, have poisonous and non poisonous parts. Uh, Some weeds have uh, lookalikes, which are unpleasant, and in some cases, extremely poisonous. Uh, And I'm thinking specifically of poison hemlock in this case, and we. Uh, didn't include wild carrot for that reason because it looks too similar to hemlock. We did put fennel, which looks nothing really like hemlock until it's dead. Until both plants are dead and if you were to eat the dry seeds off what you thought was uh, fennel, um you might eat hemlock. And that and we the second half of the book is devoted to those more advanced weeds where there are those kind of complications and fennel is actually the very last one even though it be almost when it's alive very you wouldn't consider it to look the same as hemlock but there's this one special case where it might so we've it gets progressively um, once you're halfway you get your uh, you get your advanced foragers license which is a page in the book <laughs> and uh, which is just to say you've at least read that section and discovered a few in the wild yourself and then you get to Progress onto the more complicated ones.
0: I must. I have to confess that I have picked blackberries in the wild without my uh, advanced foragers' license. <laughs> well. but, it is, but it is in the kind of um, not sealed section at the back. Um, yep. yeah. But that. But that, That's the kind of stuff that's in the in the kind of more advanced because of the because of the the prickles and, and things like that.
3: We Should, might give you an honorary PhD. Yeah, thank you. Bye, thank
0: you.
1: <laughs> Should okay. remind listeners too, we're chatting with Adam all about his co-authored book with Annie rouser Rowland, Let's Eat Weeds, A Kid's Guide to Foraging. And I mean, you've been uh, you know, on this for quite a while through you know, publishing your book, the, the Weed Foragers Handbook and running tours as well. Have you noticed a, a real growth in interest in this area of, I suppose, being much more aware of, of the food that surrounds us in our environment and, and also I suppose for making our uh, you know our eating and our um our th- the types of food we eat just more interesting by going beyond the you know authorized um, uh, herbs and, and and vegetables and that kind of thing that you can get at your local supermarket.
3: I think that there was a trend against that, which lasted you know maybe was, even in Anglo-colonist tradition. You know, the grandparents of my generation had a veggie patch, even if it was a bit shameful and up the back corner um, and there wasn't a long break from that really uh, if, if you come from a Mediterranean tradition then maybe only probably the break might be you know there's a little bit of a delay on it. I don't know but there, this is part of human cultures and uh, indigenous people in the landscape obviously knew the names and uses and, and stories behind hundreds of plants and uh, even and peasant peoples which I guess is you know my ancestors they they at least supplemented their their meals with um, with wild foods as well in the hedgerows or whatever uh, so it's not it's more the exception historically has been that there's a generation or two where we didn't know as much where our food came from and it didn't take very long for the backlash to that to start as you know the hyper-industrialization and processed food movement sort of took a few casualties and um there's something very you know growing a few veggies and teaching the kids where it comes from i think it's really there's this kind of like innate uh, besides just practical skills you get from that, and some people will find a bit of solace in it too, just having something to care for and a sense of pride and, and self-reliance. Um, but you do get a little bit of innate uh, ecological literacy, just understanding, oh, it needs sun, that's energy, and, you know, it just you get it in your bones a little bit. Mm. And with foraging... You know, there's uh, it really hooks you into the seasons a lot, and um, and and while most of the plants you know that are in the book, you can't live off them alone. They're mostly leafy greens. There's a few exceptions to that, um, but there's definitely a sense of being enmeshed in this environment, which can take care of you. And you add to that, there's a little bit of a... Because it was something we had to do historically to survive, the, and anything like that, there is... Uh, well, I guess you can think of fear-based responses as an exception, but most things, like food in general, is pleasant. Um, there has to be something encouraging you to go out there and do it. And for me, I think there it feels like there is this sort of innate like state you get into, which is quite enjoyable when you're foraging. It's low-key. It's... Low key. it's uh, it's a little um, hypnotic, but you just your thoughts feel you know a little looser, and uh, and there's something to that. So yeah, reconnecting to your food um, comes with all these uh, flow-on and benefits, and not least of all health. Because a lot of these plants that we call weeds are ridiculously not only edible, but more nutritious than the cultivated plants that we grow in the gardens or buy from the shops.
0: Yeah, and uh, as you say, they're, they're uninvited often where they're growing and you don't need to irrigate them and they're kind of there if you know how to find them. And I imagine, you know, for a lot of people, and I'm I'm one of them, like, I'm thinking, oh, I want to I go out, I want to read this book, I want to go out and I want to find some stuff just for something to do and something different to do and a bit of fun. And so, I mean, is that... I guess that's the idea behind it that, that people can take this book and, and go around and find stuff growing between the, the cracks of, of footpaths, or are you thinking more? Absolutely. Off, oh, well, off I mean, the maybe that's trail the trail a bit, just fit. in case a dog's weed or something. Yeah,
3: yeah. We say, I just came up with this while I was waiting off air, but the three S's besides that D, soil toxins, sprays, and poop. Watch out for those ones.
1: Did you say
0: the three S's? Oh, I see. Oh, I'm I so you. slow. I'm so slow. <laughs> <laughs> that's a P. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's very good. And uh, so, if people want to get their hands on it, it's available now, I understand. And it's out through Scribe, or through Scribble, which is an imprint of Scribe. There, there are, a-
1: um, the, yes, yeah, so just before you finish, there are some recipes in here as well, which is, um, is a really particularly nice touch. Are there any particular um, sort of weeds you like to forage that are your favourite? To add to a dish, Adam.
3: Oh yeah, well, I mean, it's hard to pick favourites because there are they're seasonal. But right now, south thistle is incredible. Um, so I grew up calling it milk thistle. It's not a true thistle, uh, but it's like one of my favourite cooking greens, and it just grows in abundance. It'll be in your backyard right now. Uh, Sonchus oleraceus is its botanical name. Um, there's lots of mellow at the moment. angled onion, which is a wild, uh, like garlicky green onion, which grows in some of the wetter areas. Uh, that is it's got these beautiful white flowers it's easy to identify at the moment Um, there's so many like they're genuinely uh, actually very good to eat and there are a lot of things that grow wild that i would eat in preference to anything in the shops
0: good on you adam and it's so good to uh, hear your voice and to have you on the show and uh, let's not make it uh, be too long for next time yes please Thank you. Cheers. Thanks,
1: Adam.
0: Bye. Uh, Bye. Adam Grubb, co-author of Let's Eat Weeds, which is uh, a kid's guide to foraging. Annie Razor-Roland is his co-author and the illustrations are by Evie Barrett. It's absolutely beautiful. You can get it out through Scribble and uh, I I figure in all good bookstores, I'm sure you can order or click and collect or whatever you do these days.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.